So what you saw with the Brexit referendum was a very traditional campaign on the one side from the Remain side, which was going out, knocking on doors, putting out leaflets and, and uh, you know, putting up posters and the Leave side taking a very different tactic. Uh, you saw the Leave side engaging far more data analytics, far more social media. The Electoral Commission is in, in the process of investigating Leave.eu for how it was using data. There's a suggestion that Leave.eu is working with Cambridge Analytica as well. So I think that's one of the reasons why there's been so much of a focus on the Leave campaigns, because it was a far less traditional campaign than we're normally used to. The referendum's been held. The letter has triggered Article 50, uh, Britain's decision to leave, and the process is underway. Brexit means Brexit, and we're going to make a success of it. It is not in our interests to see the Republic of Ireland do anything other than prosper. We cannot agree to do this unless we have firm guarantees that there will not be a hard border in Ireland. Hello and welcome to the latest instalment of Paddy Wants to Know Brexit. We're going to talk about dark money, DUP and data. Brian, who have we got? So Peter Gagan is uh, an investigative journalist, uh, Open Democracy, and uh, the founder of The Ferret, uh, an investigative journalism cooperative up in Scotland. Peter is going to walk us through the DUP's role in Brexit and uh, the money that came into their pockets and how they spent it. Transparency in campaign finance law, which is fascinating. No, it really is. And more broadly, how all that links into Cambridge Analytica and targeted ads and even how the Remain side were outfoxed. But before we hear from Peter, what's been going on in, in Brexit land? Who's been talking and what have they been saying? It's been quite quiet in the last couple of weeks. And we had parliamentary recess where the politicians um, in Ireland and the UK, much like school children, um, go off for two weeks and don't attend parliament. So there was a lot, it went a bit quiet. On the other side, you had a change of government south of the border and um, with quite a strong influence with Sinn Féin and that had an impact um, uh, too uh, in terms of the, in terms of the, I think, the approach. Uh, understandable. Uh, I, don't, I don't blame anybody for that. Uh, well, you had, no, you had, well, you've had a change of leader, a change of, yeah. um, of, why, of T-shirt. Why There's no influence. Been, well, because they've been, they've been playing a, a, a strong political role, which they hadn't done historically, that's all, uh, that I hadn't foreseen. You, so I don't you, think... You might want to check your, you might want to check your, your facts about, about politics in Ireland. Yeah, well, um, okay. we'll, 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 leave it, we'll, we'll, we'll leave our interpretations uh, aside, if you like. But the, but the simple truth is, both sides of the border, the politics changed slightly with the change of Taoiseach and with the disappearance of the Northern Ireland executive. And that's quite important. Um, now, it's, it doesn't mean it's insoluble. By any means, it just, it just slowed the process down slightly. So that was David Davis speaking, um, and the reaction back in Ireland, um, the one word that seems to be consistently um, mentioned by the government in this is um, strange. Are these strange comments? From Davis, uh, I, that's a very diplomatic word. Um, the diplomacy uh, goes further with um, Simon Coveney actually inviting David Davis over to Ireland to get a better understanding of Irish politics. Why are the government saying his, his comments are strange? Are Sinn Féin dictating the government's policy? I think it represents the comments from Davis that is a, a misunderstanding of Irish politics full stop. You know, that regardless of Sinn Féin, Fianna Fáil, 
Labour, Fine Gael, they, they all have the same position on this. It's immaterial as to whether Sinn Féin are strong or not. Um, and for the record, they are stronger than they used to be. Has it made a material difference on the UK government's, or on the Irish government's position in negotiations? I don't think so. Um, I, I think the Tory party's view of the Irish government and its um, relationship with Sinn Féin, I think was shaped particularly by an article by Ruth Dudley Edwards in The Telegraph, um, which is originally picked up by Rhys Mogg. Um, mm. And that view has spread. In terms of the unity of position among the parties, and you mentioned pulling the green jersey on, Fiona Fall have been hugely critical of comments by the Taoiseach um, in which he said he would rather have, quote-unquote, the right deal in October than any deal in June. Um, and they've picked up on that as kind of pushing the deadline back to sort out the border, which I think is what led to the comments by Simon Coveney this week, um, which kind of seemed to be a bit bit firmer than they were before. Um, and I think it's this sort of backlash to the Taoiseach's comments Mm-hmm. that has precipitated these comments. And we'll just hear from them now. reason why Ireland asked for June to be the next date whereby heads of state in the European Union will, will measure progress and will review the EU guidelines uh, in terms of how we proceed with, nego- with negotiations. Uh, and I think if there isn't substantial progress on the Irish border issue in terms of the backstop, simply in line with what the British government has committed to uh, by June, uh, then I think there will be some difficulties in June. In terms of Brexit's lingo, and we've consciously tried to avoid it where we can, substantial progress, is that the new sufficient progress? Does it mean anything? Can we all relax after June? Can we enjoy some holidays? Will Brexit border be sorted? Uh, In short, uh, I don't think so. Do you think the opposition, particularly here at Holmes, criticism that we haven't got what we thought we got, it still hasn't been sorted, and the longer it goes on without being sorted the weaker our position goes I mean have we have we messed up here I mean this is something I think we've discussed on one or two of the other podcasts already and that would I can't see how that's not the case because the closer we get to October when this is all supposed to be wrapped up um, with the broad strokes of the uh, future trade agreement kind of agreed as well the more pressure comes for Ireland to go, yeah, cool, we'll figure it out um, after March 2019 when Britain technically leaves the EU but in they'll be in that state of uh, transition where nothing will really change. So it's really, we could in theory push out how we fix the issue of the border for another two years, which I think would be a nightmare for everybody. Um, but yeah, I, I can't really disagree with you, Jack, on that point, uh, regardless of what... Tusk says, or Macron, or Coveney, or Varadkar, or anybody else. And just before going to air, I mean, the latest incarnation of this imaginative solution, which another Brexit jingle word, is that facial recognition technology will be the solution to the Northern Irish border issue. We all like taking photos, selfie generation and all that. Do you think it's a viable solution? In light of the fact that Irish people can't get on board with the public services card and the current uh, issues that everyone sees around 
Facebook and Twitter and verification and people taking your data, I think it would be surprising if that was the solution. I mean, in its defence, I mean, when you're going through an airport, your your picture's taken. Um, in some UK airports, your body's actually scanned. So, I mean, in terms of invasion of privacy and data collection, I mean, I'm not sure it's that that much of a jump, but I just don't think it's necessarily the, the solution that will will be able to get us through the gap on this one. But I suppose it's a, probably a good place to take a break here because data, privacy and transparency is what we're going to talk about with our next guest, Peter Gagan. When we leave the European Union, we won't have to impose any border. Uh, the problem here is that uh, the British government's stated position uh, in December and still now is that they want to ensure that there is no border uh, infrastructure between Northern Ireland and the rest of Ireland, that there is no barriers to trade between Northern Ireland and the rest of the United Kingdom, and that the United Kingdom is leaving the customs union and single market. I mean, those three things are simply not compatible. I mean, those three things are simply not compatible. But if we do, that's what the European Union wants and we go along with it. The losers will be the Republic of Ireland. The economy of the Republic of Ireland would be in very bad shape. Okay, so now we have uh, Peter Gagan on the line. Uh, Peter is an investigative journalist with Open Democracy and the founder of The Ferret an online investigative journalism cooperative uh, in Scotland. But most importantly, actually, he's a Longford man, much like myself. Peter, thanks for coming on the show. No problem. Anything for a fellow Longfordian. <laughs> We've got to help each other out when we can. Peter, you did an awful lot of work, or you are continuing to do an awful lot of work around the DUP and funding there around Brexit. I was wondering if you could just outline to us how they are involved and what the issues are. Well, to understand the DUP, well, basically, and and the Brexit campaign, you have to go back to before a few weeks and the months before the June 2016 EU referendum. And ahead of the referendum in kind of late May 2016, about four weeks before the referendum, the DUP uh, registered as a participant in the European Union referendum. So basically, for any group that wants to participate in the European Union referendum in the UK, if you wanted to spend more than £10,000, you had to register with the Electoral Commission. So the DUP said they're going to spend 10, more than £10,000 so they register with the Electoral Commission and said we're going to be a registered participant. And then in, in the subsequent weeks, the DUP, uh, we know, spent almost half a million pounds on Brexit. They were pro-Brexit and they did things like they took out a massive uh, ad in the Metro, uh, which cost over £270,000 in the, uh, the free sheet, the Metro, which doesn't circulate in Northern Ireland. They took out an ad calling for Brexit, take back control is what the ad said. They spent money on placards and posters, almost all of which were were in GB. They weren't uh, available in Northern Ireland, and they they were kind of a, they were part of the kind of vote leave collective, and they were arguing for a leave vote in the referendum. And what we discovered, what myself and my colleagues discovered subsequently, was that most of the DUP's campaign spending uh, this this was a, a donation came from a donation of four hundred thirty five thousand pounds which came from an anonymous uh, donor, well, a donor whose name we don't know because under Northern Irish electoral legislation, you don't have to give away the, the, the details of political donors. And to put that in context, £435,000, uh, in the previous assembly elections, the DUP had spent about £58,000 on the entire campaign in Northern Ireland. So they were spending you know, almost 10 times as much money 
on Brexit as they had in uh, assembly elections six weeks earlier. So this is a huge amount of money by Northern Irish standards. Uh, Four hundred thirty-five thousand pounds is, even though we don't know the details of Northern Irish political donations, is almost certainly by far and away the biggest political donation in the history of Northern Ireland. So they were using this money uh, to spend on the Leave campaign. Do you have any idea who did donate? The interesting thing isn't just that we don't know who the donor is, and the DUP have refused to release the name of the donor. They've, they've just said it was it came from a group called the Constitutional Research Council, uh, who's who is a, what's called an unincorporated association. So they're kind of using a loophole. An unincorporated association isn't a legal body, but it's an entity that's set up to give money to political causes. So you know, myself and yourself could could declare ourselves, you know, the Longford Research Council and make political donations in Northern Ireland or in the GB, uh, and that's that's totally fine. There's not there's no issue with that. Uh, so they, they um, all we know is that this uh, unincorporated association has as its chairman a man called Richard Cook who lives in Glasgow. The only other money that the you know, Constitutional Research Council has ever donated is to a small group called the um, European Research Group which is a kind of very hardline neurosceptic group of conservative MPs in the House of Commons. And they're headed by someone your listeners might have heard of uh, called Jacob Rees-Mogg. So that's the only information we got, we know about this. But we also know how this money was spent. So as well as this advert, they also spent money with a company called Aggregate IQ. And some of your listeners might have heard of Aggregate IQ recently because uh, Fintan O'Toole wrote a big piece in the Irish Times about the DUP spending with Aggregate IQ. And Aggregate IQ are a data, anal- data analytics company. And Chris Wiley, who's the kind of the... Cambridge Analytica whistleblower, he has basically said that Cambridge Analytica and Aggregate IQ were very close. He's basically intimated they're the same organisation. And it's, it is certainly clear that the two organisations work uh, very closely together, and Aggregate IQ did work on behalf of Cambridge Analytica. They're a small, tiny data analysis company pay, based in British Columbia in Canada. And what's quite interesting about Aggregate IQ is when, um, in the run-up to the, the, leave, the referendum in the European Union, the various Vote Leave campaigns, the Vote Leave itself, which is the main campaign, the DUP, a tiny little group called Be Leave, which is run by a student called Darren Grimes, and Veterans for Leave, spent over £3.5 million with Aggregate IQ. And if you're going to spend that much money, you might think, well, this is going to be a, this must be a big company, this must be somebody you'd really trust. But actually, Aggregate IQ had no web presence at all at that stage uh, and barely had, almost, had no internet footprint. So one of the big questions that myself and other people are asking is where did these groups find this aggregate IQ and why did they decide to use them? So what you're seeing with the DUP is a pattern of spending that maps similar spending as other groups uh, involved with the Leave campaign. And you might listen to that and go, what does it matter? What's the big deal? Why, why should I care? And the reason why this matters is, is kind of twofold. One is this big issue around data analytics we're seeing at Cambridge Analytica. You know, how was this data used? How were voters targeted? What was happening? But the second one is uh, is around British electoral law. And under British electoral law, campaigns are not allowed to what's called work together or coordinate campaigns. Um, and they can't do that unless, if they do do it, they have to. They can't have separate spending. So their spending has to go in together and it's capped. So there's only so much. Unlike in Ireland, uh, you can't, or you can spend pretty much whatever you want in a referendum. In in the United Kingdom, it's quite it's capped. So if campaigns are working together, their spending is capped. What we're seeing with uh, with with the spending from the from the referendum, including DUP spending, is what looks like a real suggestion that these various campaigns were actually working together. They weren't separate, but they were declaring their spending separately. And that's most obvious in the case of uh, this small group called Believe. And Believe was a tiny social media outfit set up by an art school student called Darren Grimes in his early twenties, in a kind of late 2016, early 20s, uh, late 2015, early 2016. So a few months before the referendum. 
And by March of 2016, I've been going for about three months and I had received about £107 in donations. In the last week of the referendum, Bealey uh, raised £675,000. What myself and my colleagues were able to show was that actually this money came directly from Vote Leave and it never was even in Bealey's bank account. It was spent directly with Aggregate IQ on behalf of Bealey. And the argument that Vote Leave has made is that they weren't in control of this money. So this money was spent by them purely for this organisation, but they didn't know how it was been spent and they weren't controlling it. And what we're seeing in the United Kingdom is kind of now is a bit of a pushback against this. This story is becoming uh, more prominent and people are starting to ask questions. Whistleblowers have emerged from within Believe and within Vote Leave saying that the groups weren't separate at all and that the same email addresses, they were told that Believe were told what to do by Vote Leave. And if that is proved to be the case, that looks like a, a, a prima facie case of, of the breaking of British electoral law. Did the Remain campaign not effectively coordinate across different groups and could it not be argued that the UK government before PERDA came into effect and just for our listeners PERDA is when the UK government or the civil service isn't allowed to spend any money or do any work in the run up to the election spend eight or nine million on leaflets is this not a case of the, the leave side just getting caught and the other side bratted as well Oh, I think there's certainly, and it, it is, I think the, the, the point about the leaflets is important. I think that you know, it was the it was stacked against, in many respects, the, you know, the establishment was Remain, and there was very much a kind of almost like a pro-Remain bias in, in, in the cases. Because, because the United Kingdom isn't used to having referendums in many respects, it, there's a tendency that the, whoever the establishment is, whatever their side they're on, will receive a, a kind of... A, excess amounts of media time excess amounts of, of government control of, of kind of government media so what happened was there was leaflets as you mentioned delivered to every household in the united kingdom urging them to vote from to stay in the european union there you know and there was various remain groups who who were almost certainly engaged in aspects of coordination as well but the question is is really the breaking of electoral law and what is the outworking of that so if electoral law has been broken well, what are we going to do about it um, and the other thing that's probably worth highlighting is if you look at how uh, the remain side spent their money they spent their money in very, very traditional ways. I think that's where, the two, as I mentioned, the two sides of the story. One aspect of it is is the breaking of electoral law, and it, it could be argued it possibly remained it too. There has, probably hasn't been that much research done on it, because the nature of these things is, is the newsworthiness as a journalist is in what's the current story, what's shaping policy, and remain law, so they become less interesting. But the other side of it is the social media spending and the, the data analytics, which the Remain side were not really involved with to anything like the same extent. So what you saw with the Brexit referendum was a very traditional campaign on the one side from the Remain side, which was going out, knocking on doors, putting out leaflets and, and uh, you know putting up posters. And the Leave side taking a very different tactic. Uh, you saw the Leave side engaging far more data analytics, far more social media. There's now a huge kind of um, the Electoral Commission is in, in the process of investigating Leave.eu for how it was using data. There's a suggestion that Leave.eu is working with Cambridge Analytica as well. So I think that's one of the reasons why there's been so much of a focus on the Leave campaign is because it was a far less traditional campaign than we we're normally used to. And coming just before the Trump campaign and what we know about aspects of the Trump campaign that would, are, would have been concerning uh, for lawmakers on Capitol Hill, I think that's one of the reasons you're seeing so much of a focus on what the Leave campaign was doing in the Brexit referendum. And Peter, have the DUP said how they found AIQ? No, I've asked Geoffrey Donaldson, who was an MP and the DUP's 
Brexit campaign manager more than once, and he's he's never been able to explain to me really how he found Aggregate IQ. What we do know is the DUP then used Aggregate IQ during their quite unsuccessful uh, March 2017 uh, Stormont elections. The DUP went on to spend about £12,500 sterling with Aggregate IQ after that. And as far as we can see, they're the only political party in Britain to use Aggregate IQ after the referendum, which is, again, is quite surprising that so many political parties and, and groupings would spend almost £4 million with this company uh, in 2016, and then none of them would use them again except for the DUP. So none, you're saying none of the parties, the, the Tories or, or the no. Labour Party, used it in the, in the last election? No. Okay. That is interesting. <laughs> um, can you just explain to listeners why the Northern Irish donation rules are different? And it's interesting that it seems the Leave side used two loopholes to effectively funnel 480 or 500,000 pounds uh, true to the DUP. Can you just explain why that's important or why why those rules exist? Well, basically, to wind it back a bit, you know, for listeners in Ireland, uh, until about two, until uh, the early 2000s, Irish legislation and British legislation on elections were very similar uh, in that they were kind of non, they were very thin and almost non-existent and very easy to get through. Irish legislation has changed slightly, but it hasn't really improved a great deal. I'd, I'd argue the British legislation has improved a lot more. Um, and what you ended up with is uh, a far more transparent register of political donations, uh, a lower threshold in terms of the, the, of, of the declaration of donations. And, and what you had uh, after uh, 2003, 2003 Act and uh, the People Representations Act provided far more uh, transparency for donations in well, normally the United Kingdom. But at the time it was decided, um, and you can it's probably fair to understand where this came from, at the time it was decided it was politically sensitive to to um, allow for the, the disclosure of those who made political donations in Northern Ireland. You know, on the back of the Troubles, people who uh, were making political donations in Northern Ireland at that stage, Troubles weren't that long over. There was a sense in which it mightn't be prudent to put people's names in the public domain who were making political donations. So it was decided not to include Northern Ireland in that. Um, and then we had there was a series of changes. Uh, there was a series of kind of iterations of that act for Northern Ireland. In 2010, the act was changed and it was announced that there would be political don- there will be disclosure of political donations, but the Secretary of State had to sign off on it. I mean, the Secretary of State at the time decided that, that wasn't something that they were going to sign off on. The legislation was changed again in 2014, uh, and it was supposed to be full transparency. But again, it was left up to the Secretary of State, and the Secretary of State decided not to sign off on it. Mainly, often this is for political reasons as well, because there was a sense in which, uh, especially the DUP and the, and the relationship with the Conservative Party and the DUP, were seen to not be particularly fond of the idea of political of transparency for donations. So what you had was this strange loophole where political donations can be made in Northern Ireland and they wouldn't be declared. Normally, um, but the legislation was quite cleverly written. In fairness, it was so normally at election time, if you made a, a GB, a Great Britain party. Uh, could give money to an Northern Irish party, an Northern Irish arm of the party. So the Great Britain Conservative Party could give money to the Northern Irish Conservative Party, but the Northern Ireland Conservative Party couldn't give money to the GB Conservative Party. So there was actually a kind of a firewall in in normal times to stop this loophole being used. But the big difference was a referendum, because a referendum, in a referendum, there's only one constituency, the whole of the United Kingdom, Great Britain, Northern Ireland, and in this case, Gibraltar as well. So that created a loophole then where you could you could donate money to in to a Northern Irish party who's registered in Northern Ireland and it wouldn't count it wouldn't be disclosed within the United Kingdom. And that's what was then taken advantage of in this context. So you're saying Peter someone in the cabinet office or somewhere in the UK 
for quasi foresaw this problem but didn't kind of cap it around yes. the the, yes, the issue of the referendum. referendum. Well, if you think about it, when this legislation was an act was was written in 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 the early two thousands, Britain had only ever had one all our all Britain re- uh, referendum on the United and the European Union membership. There was very little sense that it might be having a referendum on European Union membership at any time in the future, and referendums just weren't part of the British political landscape. Since then, that's changed a lot. There was a referendum on on uh, the alternative vote, there was a referendum on Scottish independence, and then there was also a referendum on uh, Brexit. So the Electoral Commission are currently investigating all of this spending and, and money in, by the Leave campaign. And there's a lot of people in Ireland, and whenever you know I go down to Longford or I'm talking to people who aren't fully engaged uh, politically, they always say, surely they'll have a second referendum or this will never go through. Would, could the Electoral Commission's investigation precipitate a second referendum or void the first one? Uh, no, no, no. In the short, in short, the short answer is no. To be honest, the interesting about the electoral commission is it has very strong investigatory powers. It can call for evidence, and it, it's very, it's it's very robust in that respect. So it, it, can, it, it there is a potential for the electoral commission to really find out, you know, big things. At the moment, the electoral commission is not just looking at vote leave and and um, be leave. It's also looking at leave.eu which is run by a businessman called Aaron Banks, who spent over £8 million on Brexit. And it's looking at the sources of his funding. It's, he's someone I've written about a lot and asking questions about, did it, any of this money come from a non someone who wasn't on the UK electoral roll, which is illegal. You're not allowed to have foreign donations in the UK. So there's a lot of potential for the Electoral Commission to bring out new information to the public domain that could be politically difficult. But the Electoral Commission itself, all it can do is levy fines, and the fines are actually very low. About twenty thousand pounds, I think, is the highest fine. So they're very, the fines are very loaded. It has some potential. I think um, it has, it can bring in some custodial sentences, but it's it's never done anything like that before. So the actual commission is a quite. It's and the actual commission itself is often asked to have more powerful enforcement. So the only possibility is that the actual commission can bring out information to the public domain that then has a political ramification. But there's no sense in which the actual commission itself can 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 do anything like void a referendum. We're going to talk um, in a future podcast about the Hungarian elections and the kind of wider spread of a liberal democracy. And you talked there about Aaron Banks. I, I see on Opens Democracy's website, George Soros is described as an evil frog. And I see he also funds Open Democracy, a platform that you publish on. Is his work different to Aaron Banks in that he, he is a wealthy individual trying to shape opinion, trying to... I suppose, affect change. I think the huge difference between uh, Soros and Aaron Banks is that it's very clear where Soros got his money from, and it's, he's also very transparent about who he funds. So we had this big sushi in uh, Britain recently about uh, better, I think it was are they called Better for the Future. I can't remember what they're called, a pro-Brexit, an anti-Brexit group. And the Daily Telegraph, a huge big front page, reveals Soros funds anti-Brexit group. That wasn't, that information was in the public domain. That is not something that I don't. That group had ever hidden. I'm pretty sure I have a press release for it. I think that's where it comes down to. I think people are always going to influence, look to look to influence ideas and policies. I think it's about transparency and openness. And, you know, so like the Open Society Foundation, who fund many, uh, who fund many organisations, they fund the Russian strand of open democracy. They don't fund the strand that I work for. But um, I think it's important. What what it's all about is really is about transparency. 
what you've seen from like Aaron Banks is a huge lack of transparency about where his money even comes from, never mind how he spends it. And I think that's where people start to ask questions. I think that's and I think it's important. You know, there's a tendency like there's always been money in politics, and there's always been people who want to buy influence or who want to have influence around ideas. I think the concern is where that influence is not transparent. It's not been publicly stated. So, for example, Open uh, Open Society Foundation would publish the names of all the people that they fund on their website, and that they will actually want people to tell them that they've been funded by them. You know, it's it's part of their remit. They're funders, so they want to see their their project. You know, they want to see their name in the public domain. The difference is for somebody like who is trying to clandestinely influence politics is where money has been spent to do things and it's not been it's not been transparent. It's not been said. It's not been put into the public domain and how and why that money is used and what the what the goal is. To be honest, I think Soros has always been pretty clear about what his goal is. He's a liberal. He's a liberal. Uh, he's a liberal man who made a hell of a lot of money. He wants to. Uh, he wants to influence liberal causes. You know that's fair enough. And there's conservatives who want to do the same. The danger is where it's not clear and it's not transparent, and they're using proxy groups to funnel money, as we've seen with dark money in the United States. You know, if George Soros was setting, wasn't saying I, I fund the Open Society, but was funding the Open Society through, you know, through ginger groups, through. Um, uh, kind of tax haven bank accounts in which you don't know where the money is coming from. That's where I think the problem for democracy lies. People don't know that. You know, you hear European Union sounds so, oh, the European Union sounds so innocent. It's not innocent. They're very tough. They're very smart. We lose $100 billion a year. Well, we got quite a lot of uh, information there from Peter in terms of the role of the DUP campaign finance law and transparency. Uh, Jack, what were your main takeaways there? Well, if if you wanted to covertly get money into a, a British referendum campaign, Northern Ireland was the destination. Um, Visit NI couldn't have really had a better ambassador than the shenanigans Peter Gagan described there for us. I think the main takeaway was the figures, um, I had to write them down and, and look at them again because they were quite staggering. So in the previous... Um, election in Northern Ireland, the DUP had spent £58,000. During the Brexit campaign, they spent 435000 As Peter said himself, nearly 10 times the amount. I mean, it's it's a lot of money, but just the scale of it and the amount that's spent on a paper that's available in London and other cities on the UK mainland, but not in Northern Ireland, I mean, it, it all just, it just doesn't quite add up. And they still haven't found exactly where the money came from, right? Uh, who gave it to them um, or how the DUP managed to find a company a data a data analytics company in Canada to spend the money on I think the other thing as well I mean the main thing about the transparency around the campaign donations was that the majority of the UK barring Northern Ireland the new transparency laws came in going back to 2014 for Northern Ireland for political sensitivities which is understandable to a point, it's 2017, so... Conveniently timed, some people could say. It would be interesting, and I suppose we'd never get the definitive answer as to whose sensitivities were being protected um, within this, but, I mean, it, it's certainly unfortunate from our own perspective that we, we'll probably never know who actually did donate this substantial well, funding. Not if Peter has his way, I suppose, and he, he he's keep he's he's hammering away at the story um um but I suppose Peter's main point was you know transparency where does the money come from 
how was it gathered did it come from people outside the outside uh, the uk and you know those are all questions worth asking in terms of how it was used in the end in terms of data and targeting and all this sort of stuff it's really where did the money come from and who's it coming from and we still don't know that for a for a large part of the the leave campaigns finances and quite probably we never will find out i mean i I think the other thing as well that was interesting was around george soros because that's Mm -hmm. i mean he's a figure who pops up in the states who pops up in europe particularly in hungary as well as Brexit is kind of a hate figure for a lot of people. I thought he was quite interesting. It, uh, again, it came down to transparency in terms of using his substantial wealth to frame the debate to match his own political beliefs. I think that is the reality, you could argue, in from time immemorial, that people with a lot of money who are interested in politics are going to use it. Soros, as far as we can see or are aware... We know where the money comes from. We know who the money goes to. Um, and on that basis, you can stand over it. Is that in and of itself good for democracy, that someone who has accumulated such wealth is able to use influence in that way? <laughs> Maybe not. It was also nice to see uh, our former guest, Ali Rannison, on the front page of the FT. We can't say we don't get the best possible guest for you guys. Self-congratulatory note. I, I think uh, <laughs> I think that's a good place to leave it. So uh, th- thanks for listening.